Hey guys, my name is Varun Balsara and welcome back to another episode of The Human Entrepreneur. Today I'm joined by Paul Levy and together we will be taking a deep dive into the subject of digital innovation, digital singularity and the impact it can have on society and what we as student entrepreneurs can do about it. Paul Levy was my professor back in year 1 at the Warwick Business School where he taught me a module on digital innovation. While he is not teaching, he can be found writing theater making and researching on digital innovation. He is also an author of the book Digital Inferno, Technosophy and the Poetry of Change. Stay tuned for an amazingly knowledge-filled episode with a professor who I really respect for his work and his ideas. Welcoming on the show, Paul Levy. Hi Paul, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It's a pleasure. So it's safe to assume that you are um, a digital innovation expert. So let's start out by defining what digital innovation is and what it really means and what it really involves. Yeah, I guess I'd start with it's dangerous to call yourself an expert in this field because it's changing so much. So I think I'm a digital innovation researcher, maybe an explorer. The field of digital innovation has really blown up the word innovation as well because we're not quite sure what that means in this field. Does it mean that you're innovating a physical process that you do and now that's digital somehow? But it could also mean you've already got a digital process that you innovate. Yeah. I mean you do that faster, you do that better and so on. But it could also be that um you innovate the, the hardware and make that work better with software or you just innovate the software and no one notices it. And then of course we've got small innovation or radical innovation we used to call it but sometimes a tiny change of code can have a massive effect on the whole system it's just sometimes called a patch that could make a whole phone yeah. 100% secure mm. so that word is used with everything from revolutionary technology that changes the whole world to the very very tiniest change that we may not even notice so it's become less of a helpful word certainly in the public domain we don't really know what it means very clearly So if you had to define what digital innovation is in like a sentence how would you do it Well I'd say now I mean it's certainly where a, from a user perspective be that in industry or be that at home it's where someone experiences their life uh, be that working or personal life being genuinely enhanced You say enhanced but it can also have a detrimental effect on you Well, that, well, that's right, and you know, it's like um, from from the world of uh, Sherlock Holmes and murder, who stands to gain? Um, yeah. And so we may think that we're getting an improvement because we save some money or we save some time. But if at the cost of that we realize or don't realize, we're being targeted with ads and being almost toxically influenced to to actually buy things we don't need or yeah. stay up late yeah. and become addicted. You know, yeah. who gains really? I think that moves on to my uh, next question, which actually feeds into whatever you're saying right now is. You've written and spoken about this whole concept of digital singularity. Can you talk to me about the concept and what it really means? Well, it's Ray Kurzweil that kind of introduced that term, um, particularly in this field, the technological singularity, which is going to arrive between 2040 and um, 2050, and we're in 2020 now. So, if you think 30 years from now, this is a prediction. And 30 years ago, so let's go right back. Well, you know, we're in a world where you didn't really have these smartphones and you didn't really have computers that you could carry it around with you. And so a lot of change can happen. And the singularity is that point, sometimes also called a kind of tipping point, mm. where the prediction is that the digital world is going to kind of have a 51% stake in our lives, controlling interest. So we're going to be 51% plugged in physically. Uh, be that through implants in our brains, be that through 
uh, our mobile phones becoming much more part of us. Uh, we're going to be the world's going to be 51% digital. Some people suggest there's no easy way back from that. Some people suggest it's going to be a benevolent thing, and other people see it as that, those dark views that have been expressed in science fiction novels, where the robots and AI take yeah, over, yeah. and we lose the essential majority that makes us human. And you spoke about phones being a part of us. Could you elaborate a little more on that? Well, actually, you can go back to, and I've done a lot of research for my books about this, but if you go right back to you know, history and prehistory, when someone picked up a spear, you then had a separation you had, or a stone that became a tool. You had human being and tool, and there was a separation. When you picked it up, you were using the tool. But as people use those more, and you can get that particularly through craftspeople and how they talk about their work, there's this moment of convergence and immersion where the tool user and the tool are one. Oh, one. Yeah. Um, and actually it's just the, the hand that's moving mm. and then you look back and your time has gone by and you've made this beautiful thing. So we always had this immersion, but the difference now with mobile phones is I don't think you took the spear with you to bed and carried it around everywhere. And I don't yeah. think the tool maker or the, uh, the blacksmith or the anvil and the hammer yeah. took that around with them. This immersion that we're talking about here is that the connection where you can't really tell the, the difference between the human being and the internet because they're just so immersed into it to the point where their senses around them have diminished and they're, they're ignoring you next to them. Um, is that that's not necessarily good if we're constantly immersed in it to the cost of the social world that we're in around us. So the, the, the upside of it is the same immersion in the digital world where we can get creative, we can have really brilliant moments of experience. VR's coming, it will be very immersive. But the downside of it is where family life, working life, our own life feels that we're losing something essential. And what are the arguments uh, surrounding this whole concept of digital singularity? Any fors, any against? What's well, the there conversation? There are three arguments. One is the predictive one that just says this is how it's going to be, so mm -hmm. it's neutral. Yeah. Uh, the technophilic one, which is the, the one in favour, will see the clumsiness that we currently experience, say, with mobile phones and these things like digital addiction as a problem. Mm. As we're just in a clumsy transition point, and when it comes along, this is the necessary transition point for tech. There's always been step change where there's a transition that things go wrong, things are not easy, there are mistakes, there are accidents, and then we break through, things get better, and we will just find it to be the new normal, the enhanced human being. It's promised to be the superhuman being. We're going to have godlike powers. We're going to enhance our memory. We're going to get rid of Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease as neurological uh, implants in our brain just sort things out possibly will live forever. The other side of it is that what's going to happen is essential humanity is going to be lost. Uh, these could be nightmares. The robots could take over. We could find all kinds of um, social problems, psychological problems, even physical, medical problems that arise from our attempt to fuse ourselves with essentially, you know, metal and other kinds of materials. There's always been a technophilic uh, side to companies that are developing this. As I've said before, this is the first real time when the speed of change and design is being driven by companies that have profit motives and not universities who are slowing it down and trying to analyse it. So we don't know the effect this is going to have. So it's, it's, it's right now a mere speculation? Yeah, but we've got some evidence. There are definitely people, as I sit here at Warwick, as I, I went for a walk, yeah. who are 
every spare moment that they're walking, they're on their, on, mobile they're phones. On their phones. Yeah. And you can see the way people sit, that when the phone rings and you pull it back towards you as if it was already part of your hand, is very different from that traditional mastery ah, that you can see yeah. in pictures of craftspeople leaning over, putting their tools away, the right tool for a job. And this rather addicted thing where people are already behaving actually as if the singularity is here because the phone is part of them. They feel panic when it's far away from them, when they can't find it, it's like losing a limb. Uh, they need it by their bed. Um, there's, there's all kinds of behaviours that you can see what the singularity, singularity might be like. And perhaps it's only a moment then when the phone actually disappears and simply becomes part of our brain. Of you, yeah. But then uh, this is seeming like a very dystopic future and I feel like I'm actually living in a, in a Black Mirror episode. Uh, is it is it all to be afraid of or is there some upside to it as well? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel or it's all going to be, is it is it all negative? Well. I think a lot of futurists point to different paths. Yeah. They, they point to one path where humanity is going to diverge and there'll be a group of people. Maybe it's a bit like the organic farm movement who will say, I want a digital experience, but I want to maintain my separation. I don't want this to become part of me. Yeah. I want to be in control. And I don't want 5G through my window. There'll be another group of people who will embrace it. And of course, there'll be a group in the middle that will explore what it is. So that will split humanity a bit even more about the haves, the haves and nots, the do's and don'ts. I've spoken to teenagers who have no problem with the idea that a free Google implant in their brain could also be collecting their thoughts for advertising purposes. And I have other people who throw their hands up in horror at that. So humanity is very much diverging around its view of this. And I think what then brings me to my next question is, where does, where does law, ethics and morality come into all of this? I mean, law is not moving as fast as, uh, as technology is progressing. So how do, you, how do you regulate something like this? And where does, the, where does the governmental bodies and all of that fit into this whole equation? Well, today, this is live news at the moment because, of course, the government has announced that Ofcom, which here in the UK is our kind of regulator that has the power to fine people in the communications industry if they misbehave. You know, if they collect people's data illegally, um, you know, if they break GDPR. And what was wanted by a whole bunch of pressure groups was that the sort of fines that large corporations get when they break GDPR, for people that don't know GDPR, it's kind of, you know, your right to know where your data is stored and it follows a number of, you know, good ethical rules, of, of actually of, of respect for human beings um, and, and keeping people safe and keeping your data private when you need it to be that there needs to be a set of rules and regulations that stop companies just invading your privacy. Um, and also you know, rules around you know, fake news and rules around um, whether you know, during election times that are coming mm. up in the US that people, that platforms can just say, well, it's none of our business if this is lies. All of that could be regulated with significant fines. We're talking in the hundreds of millions, 4% of turnover uh, was talked about, which is there in the GDPR world. And all the evidence at the moment is that the government's going to delay it and dilute it and is frightened of already the strong pushback from large corporations yeah. who bring in revenue to those governments and those countries and we want their, apparently, we want their uh, companies because of employment and so yeah. on. So they have a strong power and the sign at the moment is that the ethical side of this is still favouring uh, caution on behalf of the large corporations. And in terms of this GDPR and laws and the ethics and morality uh, and in the greater context of digital singularity, what does this mean for entrepreneurs and is there an opportunity or is it doom? Well, it's, it's, only, it's only going to be doom, I think, if it all goes wrong. You know, and the, the dangers of that is you know, when 
what goes along with it is when things get hacked to the extent that whole hospital systems go down killing people or you know, nuclear power station goes nova uh, because of that. It goes wrong when um, essentially what happens is human beings start to feel diminished and they can throw governments out maybe on the back of this. It goes wrong when um, we get a breakdown in society because we don't know but if it's true that as seems to happen, privacy and secrecy are being misunderstood. People want a right to privacy. I don't think most people want to uh, know that their conversations are being heard on buses. Um, and when they yeah. get home, the substance of that conversation leads to an advert. Now, a lot of uh, the companies, of course, are denying this, yet there's a lot of evidence that people are talking about that yeah. they were not online, they were talking about something, and then the advert appeared. There are reasons why that could happen. So if we end up towards the big brother is watching you, dystopian view, a world driven by the corporation, and I recommend anyone listening to watch that movie, it came out a few years ago, The Corporation, that showed you know, that push towards countries being smaller than companies. <laughs> and, and what goes with that yeah. when there's lack of regulation and the main goal is the maximisation of profits. That might sound like I'm an anti-capitalist. It's not. It's I'm concerned for when things go to that extreme, what happens to uh, the common human being. And I think for student entrepreneurs, Paul, I think what, what is the advice that you're going to give to a student entrepreneur that comes up to you and says, look, I'm, I, I want my business to progress. I know it can create genuine impact. But then investors, VCs, all of them, to progress, I would need to show some amount of data, some amount of data collection. And that all feeds back into that loop of you're collecting data, then you're, you're maximizing the data, and then you're using the data for your own advantage. You're selling it to your advertisers. I mean, these are the things that are considered now normal to do for any tech business. And how do you circumvent that? Because there is huge scope for startups to get very excited about the responses through their business ideas that they could come up with. But in the end, if you take the gambling sector, you know, with a lot of stuff coming around around addiction, do you want to be the startup that writes the code hidden in the background that encourages gamblers to secretly want to gamble more and get back into addiction? Or do you want to be the company that maybe helps people manage their gambling through an app, for example? Which would be more profitable in this scenario? We don't know, but you know, at the moment, if it goes down one route, one won't be profitable because it will just become a social good with no money to be made if it goes down a pure commercial route. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, we know, for example, that the uh, coronavirus outbreak, you know, finally there's people meeting up um, right now, all the researchers around the world. 13,000 studies and researchers in cancer care are finally mapping the cancer genome. Um, there was one small company, I believe it was in Canada, that had actually, had they been listened to, they developed algorithms for just listening in to all the public media that was going on around coronavirus when it was in its early days. And they have predicted from that big data where, how it spread. Um, you can do benevolent stuff. You can make humanity better as we head towards the singularity. We could shape that with a kind of universal de de declaration of human rights that when yeah. we get to the singularity, human freedom will not be um, undermined. That people could buy into cheaper models if they're prepared to go with the advertising. Um, one part of it could be, no, everyone has the right to free privacy. When you go into that place, this technology becomes even more of an opportunity for enhancing human life. A lot of people suggest while we funnel it down the need to satisfy shareholders, we end up with mediocrity. You end up with movie sequels that aren't as good as the original because the companies just want to milk 
the box office for more and more money. But shareholders tend usually towards mediocrity. But here's the paradox, Paul. If you're saying that um, we don't have to put the shareholders and satisfy them at all, that shouldn't be our primary aim. Our primary aim should be doing social good. My only argument or my pushback to that is, where's the money coming from if you're not sa- satisfying the shareholders or the investors well, to make that social change? Because there really is lots of evidence that social good and uh, wealth go hand in hand as well. It's when you go for extreme wealth, greed is good a la Wall Street, that that extreme actually doesn't necessarily deliver the best tech anyway. And you know, the biggest thing's going to be that if the current model is that we look at adverts, um, well, you know, what happens in the end if we depress that market? Well, you end up having to come up and innovate new markets. People have talked about a universal basic income. But you could also talk about a different model of advertising that's not about manipulating people, but is about inspiring them and informing them. I think at the heart of this needs to be a definition of human freedom. Um, and then out of that, I believe, would come all kinds of innovation that's not taking place now. But then what would business models and revenue models look like? Because if you're changing this, this it's a huge paradigm shift. So how, do you, how does a startup currently who is wanting to make it big currently want to do social good, but then also wants to follow what you're saying? How does a business model or a revenue model look like yeah, that? Well, sure. But when, so when people heard that Bhutan, you know, it, 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 you need to look into it because it's not as, as amazing as it sounds necessarily, but having a gross domestic happiness mm. measure yeah. and now you hear again in the news today um, and I need to look further into it but I think it's Finland that's talking about measuring well-being mm. and, yeah. uh, you know, internal well-being uh, as high as any kind of um, gross domestic financial yeah. product they are not stupid you know, these are economies that are doing very well and will grow um, and as I say the same thing I think by not going down that route um, let's face it, there's been huge growth for startups in the eco space now around the Extinction Rebellion about some of the great solutions to that, mm. about the smart home. Now, does the smart home um, need to be a place of snooping or could it be a place of um, economic and eco efficiency that frees up people's revenue yeah. to buy you know, yeah. meaningful products? Yeah, I kind of get it because like, I, I, I'm, I'm very fearful of actually uh, getting an Alexa and putting it in my room because I'm genuinely scared that she or he is going to hear my uh, conversation. Yeah. So how would, a, how would a paradigm shift look like for Amazon in this case, uh, if we're following the model you're proposing? Well, what you, what you might do is, and some people do this already, is you might say that, every, that we have guiding design principles. Yeah. And so the principles might be, and we all get used to this, that if they build trust you would have respect. Mm -hmm. And so to allow people in so that they will yield data to you would have to be in a culture where you didn't feel there were hidden agendas and secret things going on. You didn't think that that they were trying to influence how you vote because they were part of a platform where that wasn't clear and transparent what they were doing. Um, We need to know, for example, if we start having... um, Amazon, the latest one is they've started apparently registering patents and interest around pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Now, if in the end our local pharmacist is going to close down and we're just going to get cheaper drugs online from anywhere, is that what we all want? If, if Amazon had a principle called respect, they might not do that in the first place. They might partner with those pharmacies. You know, what, what, how interesting it might be if instead of just arriving like all the coffee chains did and displacing local businesses, they partnered with them. So how, how interesting that could, yeah. could be. Yeah. I just wanted to mention one, yeah. which is um, 
as I got to Brighton Station this mm. morning, there's a big bakery, and you can buy bread on the way in, bread on the way out, croissants for breakfast, and it's from a company called The Real Patisserie. This is not an advert for them, but they're known in Brighton. They've grown, they've now got kind of bakeries all over the place. But I just noticed the one in Brighton has got the name of, I can't remember his name, like Eddie's or Gary's, but it's Gary's Bakery in partnership with Real Patisserie. Now, I don't know what the nature of that business relationship is, but it doesn't only need to be a growing real patisserie getting all the money. If they could partner with local businesses who also get benefit, yeah. and then they get ground up relationships with communities, then the high street might grow again, or the online high street might be more interesting. I think we're missing out the inherent creativity in the small business if we keep gobbling it up. Yeah. And, you, and you'll be aware of how many large companies end up um, buying up these successful small mm. companies for large amounts of money, and a lot of them just disappear, and their innovative capability turns into mediocrity in a large corporation. So what's the solution for this? So if it's a student entrepreneur who's working on this, who's genuinely following the model that you're saying, and uh, it, it, it sounds really nice in, 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 in theory, but in practice, uh, if someone's coming and buying you out, what are you supposed to do? How are you say supposed to make that impact? Well, quite a lot of people um, have said no. And they've stayed small and stayed niche. But there's always a greed for money. What? There's always a greed for money. From everybody? Yeah. Well, certainly not. I um, mean, if... Uh, there are lots and lots of people who have made decisions in their life not to uh, go down that route. Um, sure, but in terms of the majority, where would you think the... the dialogue lies? Well, your listeners, you know, can ask themselves, you know, in the end, would you give up? You know, you can hear people at the end of this going, of course I would, or no way. Would you give up your values, your principles, mm -hmm. your sense of truth, your sense of honesty, yeah. or just the idea that your local community is where you are? Would you sell that and sell out your community, maybe, to a large corporation? But I can, I can put myself in this exact situation, and today I can say that, no, I wouldn't do it, because that's not where my model is right. But now, say 20 years from now, this same project that I'm probably working on picks up, it does really well, and it's bought over by a corporation that's not particularly uh, moral and ethically correct. What is my decision then? I'm not going to be able to predict myself, uh, say, 20 years from well, now. I can so what, predict myself. And well, what what can I do today? What can I do today that will actually ground me? Where is that? Where is that well, grounded? I, I'd suggest one thing that's very much developed is a lot of large corporations, whether they genuinely believe it or not are encouraging small businesses, encouraging enterprise, and realizing if they completely destroy a community. So the only thing is left are their coffee chains. Um, you know, there's no benefit to them anyway, so they do need to be in those communities. And so there's a real possibility for you to look at funding. It's certainly like in the area of blockchain, there's a lot of large companies uh, doing uh, funding, they're funding startups, they're partnering with them, they're, they're wanting to learn from them because their innovation capability is a bit slower than the ideas coming from the small businesses. Not all of those are looking to gobble those companies up. They're realising their millennial employees want to work for a company with a purpose. Um, and so it's been an interesting challenge. They've been putting people on their boards that are not just greedy shareholders. Mm. You know, they're putting in a conscience to their company because a lot of them, and whether you agree with this or not, I don't know the answer, but it would seem from the rhetoric that the likes of um, Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg have got a conscience in there somewhere. And the conscience is about trying to benefit humanity, whether we agree with their vision or not. They're not just into um, filling the greed of their shareholders or are they? 
Because if they are, we are going to use the word screwed because these <laughs> are companies bigger than countries and if ultimately they have a dystopian kind yeah, of dark yeah. view of humanity. Let me just share one of them, one dystopian view. It's a conspiracy theory. Is the reason we have um, a climate crisis is that a bunch of people have said the best thing we can do for humanity is to get population down really quickly so that we've got a more sustainable earth. Now, Imagine that, if that meeting is taking place in what's sometimes called the Bilderberg Group and those sorts of companies. Um, you know, what if in the end that the goal of companies is to take over the world? Well, they're showing a lot of signs of it, yeah. but there are also signs in the opposite direction. And there is a massive, I mean, multi-trillion dollar um, set of activities around small businesses, entrepreneurs, that are not just in it for the money, and they are still living their lives, feeling satisfied, living materialistically well, without necessarily having to follow the route of turning into Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. Jeff Bezos, I, I, I guess, or Elon I, Musk. I guess the way I see it is, it boils down to company culture and how you you hone that company culture from ground up, uh, and that goes back to honing that the thing that you said about con conscience. So, as a student entrepreneur, as a student entrepreneur listening here, how do you hone that conscience? What can I do today, uh, concrete steps that I can take so that my company does not go out, I don't take those irrational decisions that can actually impact the society I live in? Sure, well, I mean, at one extreme, your generation were out in huge numbers on Extinction Rebellion. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of things that you can do around the sustainability of this planet. That's an obvious place to start. Yeah. But equally, um, your generation is is being recognized by companies as saying, you know, Varun, you're really talented and you've told us that you don't want to work at weekends and you want private email and you want to be able to use your own phone and not a company one that's going to snoop on you. Yeah. Um, and so you're talented, we'd like to work with you. So they're influencing the ethics of those companies and you'll find anyone listening, if you would like your company to be successful in the space of innovation, you need the best people. And the best people want to be motivated, and more and more of them want purpose. They don't want to feel they're harming the planet. Um, and so your business has got more chance of succeeding at the moment as a small business if it is born out of its community's values. So it's a collective consciousness, all boys under that. And you know, even if that wasn't there five, ten years ago, the nature of Extinction Rebellion, and whatever you think of Greta Thunberg and David Attenborough, and, and the collapse of the banks through corruption, yeah. and the stuff around now about, you know, were um, elections influenced, and is it still going on? If people either throw their hands up and give up, or they become dissatisfied with that. And one thing that is really clear um, is that they don't have a lot of faith that government's going to change it. So the only way they can change it is to entrepreneurially inspire the world. Yeah, that was that was perfect. Uh, I think I want to I want to move this conversation a little bit to uh, a theory that you taught us back in the back in year one in your module digital innovation project. You you taught us there are two two view viewpoints on digital innovation and the the way it's divided is either people are technophilic or technophobic. Technophobic means they're afraid of the technology, mm. and there's technophilic, uh, which is you're very happy and you look forward to it and you're 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 empowered by technology. Now, uh, where do you stand personally on this? Uh, where are you in the spectrum? So at the moment, as I look towards the future and what's happening, is I'm not. I have quite a dark view, a negative view of where this is all going unless something shifts. Um, so it is going down a route of, um, whether it goes down the route of monop monopoly is we seem to have some very, very large companies buying up more and more and becoming the innovators and, and determining that. 
they've not been pulled up as much as they should on the tax they're not paying in those countries. We've just heard the example of how they're not necessarily going to be regulated as yeah. much. Yeah. Some companies are doing it. So if that's the case, what we're going to have is technological innovation based on company profit maximization. And that profit maximization in the digital space is about uh, advertising revenue models. And so that requires human beings to be staring at screens or digitally engaged as long as possible to satisfy the advertisers. That won't necessarily lead to um, the best outcome for us. And but there are lots of examples of yeah. how that could, that could pan out. But it looks like the, the something that's shifting is probably going to be something regarding regulations and governmental bodies, well, but what, what, what else could change? Possibly. I mean, uh, everyone ex hoped, expected that the UK, for example, could develop the model of governance that then the world would copy. That's a very British aspiration a lot. Yeah. But in this case, had they, and maybe they still will, but had they gone very, very tightly to corporations, the corporations were complaining that if they're reined in, it's going to stifle innovation. You know, that's not what the internet's about. It's about freedom. Well, it's about their freedom as well as everyone else's. Um, am I in favour of governance for its own sake? No, but it could be that at the moment that the pendulum swung too far, and so there are social consequences yeah. uh, right down to our children, and the pendulum needs to swing back the other way till it settles somewhere. So I think it's if we're in research now, you know, um, the purpose of research often is if you think something's true, don't go looking for it because you're already biased in favour of it. So at least have some healthy attempts to look at the other point of view, to kind of falsify it and see if it survives. Now, that hasn't really happened. We've gone m relatively blindly into this new frontier of digital very, very quickly. And it's now in the hands of one particular very extreme model of capitalism at the highest level. And so that makes me technophobic if it's in those hands. In any part of life, that feels unbalanced and somehow it needs to rebalance. One way could be to really encourage those smaller businesses to have influence. And so the four very large ones, what if we actually have a lot more smaller ones? ones? And you could limit that. They can't just be bought up. If you want to set up a business, you need to develop it in an area where it benefits the communities that it's in. Then we could have other measures that could be linked to tax efficiency as well. If you demonstrate good citizenship in digital innovation, so it enhances our children, it enhances the next generations, it's good for the planet, you could have a sustainability tax that's lower. We're not, we're not looking like we're about to do that that quickly. Sure, but we're, we're talking in terms of a government. What if we talk about in terms of a separate institution or a separate body that governs this entire thing that works on a very radical model instead of the governance that we know uh, in, in the UK or in India or wherever? What if we employ different people from different parts of the world, form a governing body, and then actually look at, at these issues and work, work our way around it? I mean, in terms of the government itself, there is, I, the way I see it is there's a lot of bureaucracy and smaller businesses getting into, the, getting into business per se, it becomes way harder. Just take an example of GDPR. Uh, there's so many small businesses right now on campus that suffer from the whole idea of how to cope with GDPR and there's not enough help. You have to hire expensive lawyers to do that. So while, while I agree with you that regulation does play a major role in limiting the, the downsides of digital innovation, I just feel like it also stifles new growth and new innovation that could potentially allow companies like the ones, the smaller ones that you're saying, to actually grow and flourish and make a positive impact. Well, that's absolutely true. And it was 30, 40 years ago that there were figures about the number of people coming out with MBAs were lawyers, you know, um, and, and not from other, other backgrounds. This is a huge opportunity for law, for litigation, for kind of scaring people into uh, not being those startups, because unless you've got all the lawyers, you better not go into that market. Yeah. So one level is there's an innovation opportunity of self-policing. 
and companies could write their own code to stop them misbehaving and things could kick in. Um, you know, we haven't thought about how could we use digital innovation um, in ways that uphold human rights. Um, mm. and, and, and interestingly, that particular one about self-government governing is a principle that a lot of capitalist governments would rather do. They actually say we don't want to have you know, international bodies that can, can police you. We don't have great um, records of you know, European um, courts of human rights and stuff like that do a lot of good things but they can be very slow and it can be very hard to get countries to cooperate. But what actually if the founding principles of the internet were based on other ethics. Now just to mention, I mean some of your listeners may have or not have heard this, but this is going to be a huge area for them to think about and it's the splinternet. And um, the splinternet has come in I mean two that you could find quite easily was you know attempts by North Korea to have its own internet mm. that isn't plugged into the outside world unless it chooses to be. And now Russia uh, bringing out its own internet, you know, that it practiced recently, it turned off everything other than its own one and switched it on. Now if you're a totalitarian regime, that is bad news for um, you know the people that live there. But actually, if we start to say, no, let's have diversity, and yeah. that becomes possible, you could have a country that says, and might be a Scandinavian country, we're about to launch our own internet, you can buy into it, there'll be products and services and the things you want to do, but it's based on these principles. Yeah, and it's and and the problem is, you know, the the, the internet's code, a bit like Windows, was written such a long time ago that no one dares really rewrite it from the ground up because yeah. the whole thing could collapse. But what if you could start? And with let's mention blockchain and versions of that that might be developed. But let's imagine everything was back back on a blank sheet of paper. What would you build then? Ah, that's a, that's a very interesting rhetoric. Well, yeah. there's opportunities yeah. surely yeah, yeah. for the people listening here. So, so you're not just gaming the current system, mm -hmm. you're going into a new system that might not have gaming in it at all. And where would you see, uh, how would a typical business model here look like? It, it's interesting to know that there are business models that are not online. You know, there are countries that talk about having very, very strong public services that are available to everyone, and we all pay a bit more tax, you know, ah, okay. at a much higher so, level. So mm -hmm. taxation might come into it. Again, fundamental principles of human rights might come in, which they've just been developed. We've got human rights, you know, not to have a medicine developed that hasn't been properly tested, so it doesn't kill you, and, and so on. But we haven't said that about iPhones and about Android phones. We don't know what long-term effect. We are a human trial for that. Um, so things are released onto us in the digital space that would not be released so uncarefully in the physical space. So you might have some rules about hoops that things have to jump over that uphold the safety of human beings. Um, what you might find is everyone will go, no, that will slow down innovation. But maybe not. Maybe in a new splinternet, it, there'll be models built in to ensure it's even faster innovation. Yeah. That people get used to new things. You'll have heard words like um, holacracy about running organisations mm -hmm. in very different ways that yeah. are flatter and more democratic. Yeah. And sociocracy, we're talking about uh, embedding environmentalism right back to education at kindergarten level so that we love our planet and it's not just a thing to dispose of. There's all kinds of things you could do if you could start again that would be a different, not necessarily weaker form of capitalism or yeah. any other model that you want to follow. Yeah. Also, I want to just wrap this up by uh, challenging a notion that you said you, you call yourself a technophobic and you, you're, you're particularly concerned about how technology is progressing. But a, a challenge to that is it's making the world a lot more connected. Uh, we had a conversation earlier um, this week or last week about how uh, certain uh, hospitals are using technology to, in fact, improve their uh, 
their their patients' uh, recovery and and speed that up. I mean, where does all of this fit in into your view? And then that's when I ask you the question again: Where exactly is uh, humanity headed uh, yeah. in the realm of uh, radical or incremental innovation? So, so I don't think actually I'm technophobic. You know, I produce um, books that use digital technology. Exactly. I yeah. have a podcast. I work in theatre that uses a digital mm. platform. Blah blah blah. I think I'm techno-fatalistic at the moment. You're introducing a new concept here. Yeah. What does that mean? So I have a pessimistic view of where tech is currently going. But you also believe in the power of tech. Yeah, and I don't think you can have a view about anything unless you actually can, you know, um, say you have stories to tell about it. Right, right, right. I'm just picking up your health thing. Absolutely. That's another example. There is benevolent deployment of this technology towards the end of this millennium and beyond, century, millennium and beyond, beyond, and there's also very negative, dark, depressing, apocalyptic deployment yeah. of it that actually leads to all the bombs going off at the same time, you know, through a hacked weapon system. Boom. Goodbye, Varun. Goodbye, Paul. Right. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. pleasure. Thank you.